Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. We are back with another episode of the AAF Exchange. On this episode, AAF President Douglas Holtz-Aiken will continue to discuss the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, let's start with the biggest issue in Washington, the what and when of the next coronavirus aid package. First, let's talk about the what. Aside from the UI supplement, which we'll discuss a little later, what's the latest on the major components of the next package? really hasn't changed very much. So this is a little bit like Groundhog Day for our, for our listeners. Um, you know, there will be money for the state's localities, and included in that will be uh, a heavy dose for schools. Um, dollar figures uh, to be determined. That's a lot of fussing right now on that. Uh, there will be a business liability protection. That's a, a must-have for Republicans. Uh, there will be some additional uh, economic impact payments known as checks uh, uh, for uh, households. Those pieces are in there for sure. Uh, the development today is that Secretary Mnuchin ruled out the payroll tax cut that the president had been asking for. Uh, so that, that clears that out of the negotiations. And so the core the core issues remain the same, which are, you know, those three things plus the UI as, as the base bill and then a variety of other less significant considerations uh, sort of entering and, and leaving as the negotiations proceed. Yeah, I mean, every 10 minutes on watching the news, it seems like uh, I gestured to uh, the TV in my background, but uh, things are changing, things are being updated. It's, it seems like a lot's happening behind the scenes right now. Right, we but, don't know. Either a lot's happening or nothing, right? But we, we do know that most of the things that are being said are positions being taken for purposes of negotiation. So, you know, when you see Mnuchin on TV, by and large, what you're getting is trying to frame the, the White House Senate Republican position, when you hear, you know, uh, the speaker say, well, Republicans are in disarray, that's that's a, a clear attempt to frame the negotiations as well. Right. Um, what about this issue that we've heard a lot about, which is the liability protection for employers? How important is this for businesses? And on the flip side, could this actually discourage employees from returning to work at all? So the mechanics of it are that, uh, the, the business would be um, prevented from being liable for a lawsuit if it took reasonable precautions uh, to protect against infections. And reasonable precautions would mean adhere to standards as set out by the CDC or uh, a, a state authority that, you know, there have been a variety of different uh, considerations there. In, in some cases, um, uh, they all, there's also a provision to move the, any such claims into a federal court as opposed to state courts where there's a history of, of, of more aggressive um, uh, anti-business sort of settlements on these things. So uh, that's the mechanics of what's going on. The argument against this is that if you give businesses this sort of liability protection, they won't protect their workers and the, the businesses will be more dangerous uh, than they should be. And, and this is dangerous to employees. Um, I, I think that's that's an overstatement of the case, to be honest, given that you do have to meet a standard in order to be protected. And, and so you can't just stop taking care of your workplace. So, you know, that's the that's the nature of this. Um, in As in many situations, it's probably not the provisions per se that are the real concern. It's the precedent they set, 
does this lead us down a slippery slope to you know some other um, policy down the road? And that, so people are worried about more than just what's on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. What other parts of this package should we be paying attention to, or you're paying attention to closely um, as negotiations ramp up and we move towards a final bill? I think the funding for state and local governments is just going to come down to raw politics, right? Mm-hmm. How can how can you raise it? and keep Republican votes or lower it and, and, and keep Democratic votes and, you know, getting to the right number is going to be everything here. So um, I, I don't know how, as a matter of policy, to, to tell listeners to, to sort of look for the outcome there. So that, one, that one's pretty, pretty, pretty difficult. And to give you a flavor of that, you know, Republicans have been crowing that in the Democrats' House-passed HEROES bill, there was $100 billion for schools uh, to help them uh, protect, uh, reopen in a safe fa- fashion. Um, so they put 105 into the Republican proposal and said, see, we, we did even better. And then the Democrats came back and said, yeah, but we think it's 400 now. So $400 billion is our number. So it, they're just, you know, right. that's going to just turn out through politics. Um, there's a lot of goalposts moving. Or- there's a lot of goalposts moving. Uh, uh, the business liability we talked about, the the economic impact payments, the, the checks. The real question there is how broad-based are they or will they be targeted more narrowly at at lower-income individuals? I think that's closely related to the discussions on on the uh, extended UI benefit, the the federal bonus. Um, There we're running into some some interesting sort of politics. If you think back to how the CARES Act was passed, it was a 96-0 voice vote. It was not a recorded vote. So no Republican has ever been recorded as voting for a $600 federal bonus. So there was a, pro- a seemingly innocuous proposition that if, if these negotiations are going to drag on into the first or second week of August and the bonus expires at the end of July, maybe the, it should just get extended for a couple of weeks, a short-term extension. That would require Republicans to affirmatively support $600 a week. Not going to happen. Yeah. So those are the kind of it's not really the money per se. It's it's being on record as saying that's a reasonable unemployment insurance benefit. They don't want to be done. They don't want to do that. So that's not going to happen. I think that adds some urgency to the rest of the negotiations because that's going to drive things in the end. And um, we're going to have to sort of see where where they land. From a, a matter of policy construct, the $600 UI benefit does two things, and they're in conflict. The higher is that benefit, 600, 700, um, the more income support the household sector has, and thus the greater its capability to spend as things open up and and, and develop that virtuous cycle of uh, spending, employment, growth. Um, however, at the same time, the higher that is, the greater impediment it is to getting people into work, and that interrupts the virtuous cycle of spending, employment, and growth. And so uh, you have got a problem in that if you want to do both those things, have a, a a sort of vibrant labor market and support households, you you need to do it with separate instruments. You can't accomplish that task with only one thing, and that's what they're, they they need to come to terms with. So move the the payment down, say to two hundred dollars or three hundred, whatever it may be, and then recognize that you may want to be more generous on the checks at some point in order to support households as needed. So that that's the trade off, I think. Mm-hmm. Going to end up being linked. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the things we're hearing about the UI supplement. I mean, it's the big one. We're, of course, just a little week away, over a week away at the time of this recording, that these benefits are going to expire. I think it was Monday you wrote 
about the Schumer Wyden plan. So yeah. let's talk about some of the specifics there. Can you walk us through this plan and your concerns about it? Yeah, Schumer Wyden would uh, take that $600 benefit and phase it out based on the unemployment rate. And so it stays at 600 until the unemployment rate gets below 11%. Then you drop it down to 500 until it gets below 10%. Then you drop it down and you just keep going until you, at, when it gets below 6%, the benefit goes away entirely. They would do that on a state-by-state -state basis. So you look at the unemployment rate in your state and, and the benefits would be decided on, on that basis. Um, it would also, based on the unemployment rate, divide states into one of four tiers um, where um, it, in the most extreme, if you have a high unemployment rate, you would extend the unemployment benefits by an additional 39 weeks. Now they're already 39. So now you're at well over a year of unemployment insurance benefits or you extend it by 26, or you extend it by 13, or in the in the when the unemployment rate gets low enough, there's no extension. And so you're providing benefits at a high level for a long time, for a long period of time. So observation number one is this could be really expensive. And I put the ballpark at something like a trillion dollars. I ran through a spreadsheet and got to 960 billion as a rough guide, but it, it's a fair amount of money. Uh, second concern um, is that uh, it may be that that high unemployment rate or high uh, uh, benefit is the pro reason you have high unemployment. So you get it backwards. Um, you know, as we've seen already, 63% of workers make more on UI than in their previous job at 600. Um, if you get it down to 100, you still have a quarter of workers where that's true. So this has the potential to profoundly interfere with labor markets for a long time. You know, it takes... Uh, you know, well over two years for this to go away entirely in our in our estimates. So uh, that's a concern from the point of view of labor markets and getting people hired. I, I think you start to get into some real issues of fairness when you do this on a state by state basis, and it's three hundred bucks in one state and six hundred bucks in another. How do you how do you you know sort of maintain that? And the thing I worry about, which is more subtle, and and what has to do with uh, the nature of the social contract, is that we want people to to work work has many benefits in life past the financial part but there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be on unemployment insurance for two years or so going to go back to work and they're going to make less and so literally work won't pay it's it does it's not right and that that sows the seeds for well why am i not getting as much in the private my employer must be screwing me um or yeah. or whatever and it breeds distrust in the core system of providing people with work fulfillment and financial uh, support in the United States. And I worry about that a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a very important point. Um, so essentially, is this proposal? Um, can I say one more? Yeah. Since I'm not a fan, just, just to pile on, uh, you can take out the referee's flag when it becomes unnecessary roughness. Um, uh, I, I don't like this as, uh, for another reason, which is, it's an attempt to bypass our system of politics. The whole point of this is, is to basically say, well, some future Congress might not provide the benefits we think are justified, so let's put it on autopilot so that that Congress doesn't do that. Well, that's just crazy. A, you can't tie the hands of future Congress. If they think it's too high, they'll come back and change the law. And B, you need to trust your elected representatives to pursue the best public policy. That's our system. And so it I, I don't like the attempts to end run the basic system. I think those are all very good, important points. Um, I also appreciate the sports reference as sports start ramping back up again. 
I, I know you know this, but I'm happy that baseball is finally coming back tonight, um, even though the Red Sox don't play again until tomorrow. But, you know, I can I can wait one more day. At least we have some Nats Yankees baseball tonight to get us through. Well, so for, for listeners who don't know, Kyle is not in D.C. right now. He's back at his home state of Vermont. Um, I can report a very important development, which is that for months we have gotten a Washington Post that has the sports section being the final couple pages of the style section, completely unacceptable in my view. Um, the Post has returned to printing a standalone sports section. So sports are coming back. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. Can't <laughs> wait. Um, so the, the Wyden-Schumer proposal is obviously unlikely to become a, a law. Is this just basically them uh, opening uh, negotiations on their side? I think it's two things. Uh, this is... Um, Part of a, 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 a long-running, broad effort by uh, those on the left to automate the social safety net in a much richer fashion. So this is one of many, um, quote, uh, automatic stabilizers that they want to put on um, uh, into the law and have be around for, forever. Like th This is not viewed as a pandemic response. They just want to have this forever. Um, and so every chance they get, they're going to put something forward. And that's what Wyden Schumer is. It's also a negotiating position for this moment. And and one can expect that, um, you know, Republicans are going to be like, no, I don't think so. And we'll see where we go. So these are so basically, yeah, the, these will have broader implications as as we look down the road that we should all be paying attention to. Are there proposals out there that in your mind strike the right balance of providing a regular income while not deterring people from going back to work if they can? So this is the this is the hard question to answer because it depends what else is in the package, right? So suppose that we um, decide to send a monthly check to every household in America for twenty four hundred bucks. Well, that's four six hundreds. You could get rid of the payment then. It mm -hmm. would be even broader income support because it would go to the employed as well as the unemployed, and you I'd, I'd say get rid of this federal bonus. So. Probably not going to do that. So we, suppose we're sending a monthly check for three hundred. Well, that's that's a lot less. Maybe we want to leave this federal bonus in place for those who are unemployed to get a little bit more than that. So I think that's what goes on. Is you have this this sort of interplay of of the income support provisions. You got to figure out where you land on both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's a lot of proposals out there, so it's tough to to keep track of. I think you know the the, the Schumer Wyden plan. Um, I think Senator Portman of Ohio came out with a plan, you know, much, a bunch of other ones. Um, even some states, I think, have been working on, you know, we've talked about the Georgia thing quite right. a bit in this podcast. We'll have to keep an eye on it, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it for the next couple of weeks. As we noted earlier, you know, the, sup the UI supplement expires next Friday, July 31st. So I'm going to ask you to play, you know, DC uh, crystal ball a little bit. How likely is it that we'll get another bill by by then or will this be a conversation a debate that we have after july 31st and finally get something done in the weeks following that i think it's highly unlikely to be done by next friday we were told that republicans would unify on a proposal and it'll be out on tuesday it's thursday i haven't seen it um so that's one side getting its house in order then you have to negotiate between the, the, the two sides, get the White House to sign off on whatever's agreed to. I don't see that happening in the next week. So I think we're looking at one, maybe two weeks in August. 
best forecast I've got is that it will include a retroactive provision of whatever they agree on for the after July 31st uh, federal bonus. And I have no idea how that will be administered. How will you find out? The, how will you find those people and get them the money? So um, expect to hear a lot of commentary about this um, in the weeks to come. Okay. And then what about the Fed response? There was a recent Wall Street Journal article, and they were discussing that the Fed themselves were going to discuss how to provide more stimulus spending in the next couple of weeks. What could we expect from the Fed? So there are, you know, a number of levers the Fed could pull. Um, not interest rates, right? They've got interest rates as low as possible. So they could they could step up their purchases of uh, treasury securities and and pump more cash into financial markets. Um, uh, I think that would only be merited if um, there was some sign of liquidity problems. I don't see that. Or they could change the maturity that they buy. So go buy 30 years and 10 years instead of short dated securities and thus lower longer term interest rates a bit more. That's generally the route to stimulate big ticket purchases um, of durables. And so um, there's been talk about that. They might try to do that. Um, or they could go, uh, that's all monetary policy. They could go back to their um, uh, Main Street lending program and municipal liquidity facilities, the things that they are doing in conjunction with Treasury, change the terms to provide more generous credit terms there and get people to, to borrow through that vehicle. Um, in the end, I think the Fed's been very loose and it's been committed to being very loose for as long as necessary. There's not much more they can do. Um, this is all fiddling at the edges. Got it. I also saw this week that um, the EU, the European Union, finalized a plan to respond to COVID-19, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Is there something we can learn as the U.S. from their response? I don't think so. I, I think um, as a rough characterization, most people think that Europe's done pretty well in the public health um, uh, effort and not very well in the economic effort. The U.S., in contrast, has continued high infection and, and death rates by European standards. But we've done way better in terms of the economic response. Uh, our our economy is expected to contract by about 10% in the second quarter. That's that's half of what most of Europe's going through. So what, what CARES did was very effectively address the economics. What the Fed did was very aggressively respond. So we've done better on the economic response than, than Europe has. They're catching up. Uh, and this is actually significant from an EU point of view because it is the first time after many efforts that they can get all the member states to agree on a fiscal policy, in this case, to issue some, some bonds that they will all back, they will all be liable for repayment to provide um, uh, funds to uh, economies to grow more rapidly. They, they've had a bad growth problem for a long time, since 2007, 2008, and they've been exclusively relying on the European Central Bank for, for stimulus. There's only so much a central bank can do and and they were out of bullets and and germany always stood in the way of getting these deals done because uh, this is loose fiscal policy borrowing spending germans uh, don't do that germany doesn't like that and to get them on board and get all the member states to agree to this was quite an accomplishment fair enough finally something that we've been talking about a lot at aaf this week about this tuesday past tuesday was the 10-year anniversary of the uh dodd frank act um yes. aaf has rolled out several products this week to assess the consequences of the law over the past decade. Um, what does the current pandemic tell us about the effectiveness of the Dodd-Frank Act? So I think it, um, it the good news in the Dodd-Frank Act um, 
is that our large um, banks uh, are better capitalized and more resilient to financial market disruptions than they were before. And so in the middle of the pandemic, the Fed ran its so-called stress test. Let's, let's look what happens to the banks if all of these loans go bad and, and the unemployment rate skyrockets. And, and they came through with flying colors. They have enough capital that they can absorb those losses, not uh, go near to bankruptcy, not go near the bailouts that we saw in 2007, 2008, all of that. So, so I think we, we learned a lot about the value of holding more capital, and that was one thing that, that Dodd-Frank did. Um, we also learned that we're very reliant on a smaller, a relatively small number of fairly large banks, and that's the downside of Dodd-Frank. The, the very heavy regulatory apparatus they draped around the banks is so expensive that no one wants to go in the banking business, and lots of financial services have migrated elsewhere. And so, um, you know, we have non-banks who are now our largest mortgage lenders. Um, they're like the quickens of the world, and um, that's a direct result of Dodd-Frank. So we've, we've dispersed a lot of financial activities as a result of Dodd-Frank. And, you know, the last thing we've learned is that, you know, regulators aren't smarter than everyone else. They, no one saw the pandemic coming. And so if you're going to rely so heavily on regulation, you ought to recognize that they can also be badly wrong. And, and that's, that's a concern of mine, at least right now. Mm -hmm. What about some of the regulatory rollbacks we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks and months with, with the pandemic? Do you think any of those regulatory rollbacks that have happened will be made permanent? Well, there are some that I think should be, particularly in the health area, not as, so much in, in the Dodd-Frank area, but um, in the health area, like telehealth is the, is the poster child for this. The regulatory rollbacks allow people to do telehealth from their home instead of having to go to a place to do telehealth, which never made a lot of sense. Um, and we've just seen a boom in telehealth. And so uh, those authorities were all emergency authorities. They'll go away. Congress should change the laws to, to make telehealth more readily accessible. We saw physicians go to New York and, and, and try to help people in, in, in the worst of the, the distress there. Typically, a physician can't cross state lines in practice. They waived that. We should get rid of that. We should allow physicians to, to cross state lines in practice. So there, there are a variety of health things that are going to go on. Um, we did see in the financial services sector, um, uh, the regulators providing forbearance for people who got behind, encouraging banks to, you know, sort of not be quick to pull the trigger on, on calling someone um, uh, uh, in to pay off their loan. And, and there are a lot of things where they had to, as a result, relax their requirements for, for bank soundness. They were probably overdoing it to begin with. The fact that they can relax the, the safety and soundness regs and not worry about the banks tells you that they were too high to start. And so we're learning a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the telehealth thing. And you mentioned that I'm here at my parents' house. I watched my dad have an like an eye problem, and he just was able to do one of these conference calls with his doctor. They took a look at his eye, and then they wrote a prescription and sent it over to the pharmacy for him to go pick up. It was quick, simple, probably something that would have taken – couple of hours to go into the office and, and deal with. And it just made so much more sense for, for him to do it from the comfort of his couch. Yes. Um, you know, you can't do everything by telehealth and physicians worry about people not getting in and, you know, sort of getting that, that initial intake with the blood pressure and temperature and sort of checking in on, on a patient. But you can do that once a year and in between do the telehealth, things like that. 
Yeah. So, Doug, thank you for coming on today. Uh, this was another great conversation. I think I neglected to thank you for coming on at the top of the show, so I want to make sure I got it in at the at the end. Throughout. I mean, I've just been just just moping over here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt the energy a little different, but we got through it. Um, so thank you again for coming on. Do you have any fun plans for for the for the weekend coming up? As it turns out, um, next week I will be off work, and so I will um, not be on the podcast, and I will be uh, at the Outer Banks um, staring at the ocean. So I'm looking forward to it. That sounds like a great break to this uh, whole fun. We'll be back in two weeks to, uh, to continue our discussion. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you, Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.